these ideas that especially, you know, as women, that we should be continuously transforming ourselves, remaking ourselves for the gaze of a man or to win this, the attention of a man, that male gaze is old. It's been around for a long time, these beauty ideals, how those beauty ideals intersect with power. I certainly drew on a deep well of source material, I think, to bring the shots to life. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe and I'm thrilled to take over the Convo couch today and this week's episode of Rights for Women to do one of my all-time favourite things and interview a fellow author. My guest today is Naima Brown. Naima holds degrees in Middle Eastern Studies, Anthropology and Religious Studies. Her non-fiction has appeared in Vogue Australia, The Guardian Australia and more. She has spent over a decade working in news, current affairs and documentary, save for her brief stint, which we will touch on, in reality TV which inspired this novel. She was born and raised in Northern California before living and working in Yemen and Afghanistan, and she now lives in the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales. Neymar, alongside Melissa Doyle, is the co-author of How to Age Against the Machine, an empowering guide for women ageing on their own terms. The Shot is her first novel. Welcome, Neymar. Thank you so much for having me, Meredith. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, look, honestly... I finished this novel in a complete rush. I have 50 million questions, but we've got an hour, so I'll, <laughs> I'll do my we'll best. We'll do rapid fire. Yeah. Oh, no, don't be too rapid. You go as long as you like. <laughs> I want to start this conversation by asking about your former career. You started off in news and current affairs, and I was just curious, I'm sure our listeners are as well, what prompted that initial career path? I had thought that I was going down an academic path. So I, as you mentioned, I have a background in anthropology. I was living and studying in the Middle East. I have a real passion for language, for the Arabic language, particularly at that time. And I thought I was just going to go through my PhD track and just stay in that little cloistered academic world. And then I happened to find myself living in a part of the world with a lot of attention and eyes on it, often for tragic reasons and traumatic reasons, conflict and war. And I felt really compelled to write and engage an English readership, English language readership, uh, about the other uh, elements of these beautiful places that I was living. So I started writing for a local English language paper in Yemen, that probably had about six readers. But that experience really pivoted me away from academics into journalism. And then everything grew from there. But I decided I was more interested in having a wider conversation with a wider audience about more things, and hopefully having a broader impact than those more insulated, very niche conversations that you have within academia. 
And I think anthropology is one of those qualifications that obviously it stems from being interested in people, but it is amazing to see the human interaction, culture, society in general, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It was a, a magical time in my life and one that I'm still processing in many ways. I bet. And then I guess the, the next bit is a sort of a sidestep in one sense is how did you end up working in reality TV on The Bachelor? That was a bit of naivete in a sense. Obviously, it worked out for me in the end. It inspired this novel. But I had just moved to Australia off the back of living in Afghanistan and Yemen. I had just finished a year on the news desk in New York City. So I was working in a lot of really hard news. And that news cycle can be quite grim. And sometimes you need to come up for air. And I had a lot of friends that were working on some of the big reality television shows. And they all seemed to be a little bit happier, a little bit less stressed out, maybe needing a little bit less therapy than I felt like I was needing at the time. And I thought that working on The Bachelor, Bachelorette would be a kind of lark and that everyone was in on it, no one was taking it too seriously and that I could just have a little bit of a break, do something else and then come back home to news and current affairs, so to speak. It wasn't the lark and the kind of lighthearted romp of an experience that I thought it would be, but it did plant the seed for what would become the foundations of the shot. I'm sure we're going to uncover some of those experiences in some of the future questions. In what part of it was it, of that experience, was it that did inspire the shot? I think in its simplest form, it's the power dynamic, right? And, I, and there are power dynamics in every workplace in every family and households within friendships power dynamics are infused in our lives but i think that there's something particular about a manufactured environment that you have within reality television maybe not all reality shows i'm not a huge expert of the genre the bachelor bachelorette for example is a very manufactured contrived conceit and within that you have crew and talent. You've got a lot happening in terms of guiding a group of human beings towards a desired outcome. And observing that, I, I was a very junior producer. I, I took a few steps down to have this little break from news and current affairs. and But it gave me a position to stand back and observe and watch. And yes, it just there were so many moments where I just thought, this is a ripe environment for exploration through fiction it, it just sure is. yes yeah. <laughs> it's amazing really that nobody did all of this before if you think about it so the shot is set between I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly is yeah. between a Florida town called Puerto Seguro Lagoon and yeah. New York City it's a character-driven novel and narrated by from two different perspectives we have Christy and Mara so can you tell us first a little bit about Christy? Who is she and what is going on in her life when she meets Mara? Mm. I will just preface that answer by saying that both Christy and Mara are from Puerto Seguro, Florida, yes. and you, you pronounce that beautifully, and which is important to me and I think to the structure of the book. Um, so Christy comes from the wrong side of the tracks of this town. She is a 20-year-old kind of stuck young woman. She feels very much under the weight of the limitations that she believes her class, 
her socioeconomic status, her education prowess or lack thereof, all of these things she feels have been a bit of a boulder on her back. And she's living with her parents who have some challenges and she's pining for this lost love, the high school boyfriend that left her behind to go pursue bigger and better things, which indicated to Christy a sense of unworthiness and a lack of value that she didn't have the bona fides necessarily to follow him into this next phase of her, his life and her life. And Mara intersects with Christy when she's on a visit home. Again, they're both from the same hometown. Mara is from the right side of the tracks, right? So she has all of those trappings of power. She had that privilege, that leg up that she was already a f- many steps ahead in the race than Christy. And when she encounters Christy, she sees in her the perfect contestant, exactly who she's looking for this new reality show that she's devised called The Shot. I think she sees in Christy somebody who is just vulnerable enough, just malleable enough, a, a bit gullible hasn't seen much of the world uh, and someone that she thinks she can really mold in her own image, which is where things get really messy. Yes. And the other thing I think that's important about Christy when we meet her is she's still pining for Max. Let's name Mm. the high school sweetheart. He's important. Pining for Max in a way that's A, really unhealthy. And because she's from the wrong side of the tracks and he was from the right side of the tracks, there's also that lovely, neat divide uh, she's trailer park and he's yeah. and he's in a gated community kind of environment and Mara is from the gated community. I just want to touch a little bit on Mara before we go too much further. She is CEO of her own TV production company called Channel Real and she's just, I love that you did this, coming off the back of a highly successful series called Kidnapped. How did you dream up that premise? <laughs> oh, do you know, I'm so happy that you've asked that, Meredith, because no one's asked me about Kidnapped. And it, I'd like to think it's because the rest of the book takes you by both shoulders and carries you along. But I think Kidnapped is really funny. And I think it's, but also sets the stage and indicates the kind of mind that Mara has. Exactly. That she's willing to go to. Kidnapped is, yes. So Kidnapped is Mara's, as you said, the show she's just coming off of the back of. And the premise of Kidnapped is that you have a a woman who's unhappy in her marriage and feels that her husband is ignoring her, not paying enough attention. So she is fake kidnapped and makeup artists make her look like she's been a bit bloodied and bruised. And he's sent or he's given a, a kind of remit to try to rescue her from these kidnappers without the use of any police and all of these things. And it's basically a kind of test to see if what lengths he'll go to win her back. And I think what was important about coming up with such an outrageous idea is that now she has to top it. And I think that really reflects what we're all living through. Our content diet, our media diet in the world today is all about keeping that machine fed, keeping new things coming down the pipeline. We've got 4 million streaming services and we've got content at our fingertips. And so you've got people who are thinking, okay, what's the next big thing? I have to ratchet this up a little bit more each time. And so the shot is that next ratcheted up, bigger jeopardy, a bigger ask show that she comes up with. 
Which leads perfectly into the next question is <laughs> having just described kidnapped, which was hilarious as well as awful. Yes, is but I think sh- funny, yeah, funny. Dark, very dark. I have a so, dark sense of humor, Mary. Yeah, great. So. No, I'm with you there. Um, so Mara's brilliant idea is The Shot. So I think we need to set vision is for her new television series, The Shot. So The Shot, and, you know, I mentioned that she finds Christy pining for her lost love and the and who will slot right into the shot because the shot is a reality show designed to give a jilted woman another chance to get that one who got away and the way by which she's given that opportunity is to undergo what we call total body transformation. So it's a extreme witness protection level plastic surgery from top of your skull to the tip of your baby toe and everything in between. So rendered unrecognizable, but then she's also given a new identity, a new personality, so to speak, and is then implanted within Max's world through what Mara calls guriality, using the kind of tools of gorilla warfare but merging with a kind of documentary filmmaking space so hidden camera lots of plants and things like that to document their encounters christy has 30 days to convince max to fall in love with her under this new guise if she's successful she gets to keep it she gets to enjoy the privilege and power and love that come with this this new form If she's unsuccessful, she has to have everything reversed. So she'd have to go back under the knife, have all of the surgeries reversed and all the trappings of her new life withdrawn. So that's the outline of the show. Yeah, and so totally disturbing when I was like, we don't want to give anyone spoilers, but reading through that is just such a humiliating and painful and laborious process on so many levels it's so disturbing Mm. as a premise which makes it great of course because we're talking (laughs) fiction and obviously the other thing that struck me about the total body transformation is in fact the doctor himself I think it's Dr Warren Michaels who is himself a reality tv star as well isn't he so he's only he's not only supposedly a qualified plastic surgeon he's also a reality tv show and what we I was wondering where if you're going anywhere with that not beyond the actual mechanics of having the total body transformation yeah absolutely I think that in terms of I guess a kind of character sketch an early character sketch in in the states where I am originally from we have a lot of TV doctors. We've got Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, a lot of doctors who have made their career repackaging medical advice for as an as entertainment. And so I think I was definitely wanting to look at that, examine that. And then I think, of course, it's that idea of where, uh, where are our boundaries? Where is the line between private medical information and disclosure for a reality show or these kinds of things. And again, without giving too much away, there's also a a psychologist who is employed by the production company to vet the contestants and talent and make sure they're of sound enough mind to move forward in the process. And I think those muddy waters between the people who have taken an oath to care for us and provide care and maybe having some other motives when fame and glory get involved is worth having a peek at. 
And the duty of care, of course, also extends to the fact, and you make this point really well in the book, that Mara has no interest in, in, in Christie's welfare, as in her psychological welfare at all. She's just ticking boxes so she can't get sued. So I thought that was beautifully put. So yeah. when we meet Christie at the beginning, she wants to do anything to get her high school bow back, Max, which includes going under the knife to get to transform into a supposedly a better version of herself. Where, does this also stem back to your previous answer about what were you thinking about as who were providing her with a solid reason, a believable reason for the readers, I suppose, to go to such extremes? That that has the potential as a writer to seem, I guess, in a way almost flippant. And I, mm-hmm. I think what you succeeded really well in doing was we were totally in, invested in Christie's motives and her vulnerability and, as I said, the rather gruesome experience that she goes through. Was that, what points were you making with that and how hard was that to write? Yeah, I think that Christie was approached by Mara during her darkest hour, right? And none of us during our darkest hour always make the best choices for ourselves. And I think that opportunities, obviously, the shot, the show, the shot and total body transformation is extreme. But opportunities for a quote unquote, do over a second chance at anything in life is alluring. It is the stuff of folklores and myths. It's been a part of our kind of storytelling tradition for eons, this idea of I can if I can transform myself into something else, then I can have success, or then I can have love, or then I can have power. And so yes, I think I wanted to be careful not to write it to be honest, a show like The Shot and this level of manipulation or this level of alteration is not too far away from certain programs and shows that we have seen on our screens. Uh, We have had plastic surgery makeover reality shows. We have had weight loss transformation shows, even to a certain extent, home renovation shows. As benign as that might seem is about let's redo you, let's make your home better, let's make your life better. So I think it was really just about turning the dial just a few notches, but not so far that it's not, that it becomes fantastical. And I hope I did that. It reminds me, when you're speaking like that, it just reminds me of Margaret Atwood's answers to The Handmaid's Tale. I didn't make any of this up. This is all out there. And it is true. Even, and you reminded me too of even more benign versions of this genre. Maybe these are the seeds of this genre is Trini and Suzanne, where all they were doing was giving you literally a clothing makeover and a a makeup makeover, but somehow you were going to be a better version of yourself at the end. Thomas, uh, yeah, so I'll just share with you just quickly. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just, it, it illustrates a lot. Just the other day, I actually went and saw the live action Little Mermaid film with my girlfriend and her two little daughters. And sitting there eating my popcorn, watching the show. And we get to the point where Ursula, the sea witch, or maybe the producer, is saying to Ariel, look, we're going to transform your body. We're going to take away that tail, give you legs. We're going to give you a new identity. You won't have a voice. We're going to put you in a new world, in a new environment. You've got three days. If you can pull this off, you can keep everything. And if you can't, you lose everything. And I looked over at my girlfriend and I said, 
did I write The Little Mermaid? And obviously hoping that I don't owe anyone any copyright fees or anything. But what it really reminded me of is that these ideas that especially, you know, as women, that we should be continuously transforming ourselves, remaking ourselves for the gaze of a man or to win this, the attention of a man, that male gaze is old. It's been around for a long time, these beauty ideals, how those beauty ideals intersect with power. I certainly drew on a deep well of source material, I think, to bring the shots to life. So this is extraordinary high-stakes stuff, as these shows are. That's the fodder of the shows, isn't it? You've got to have a real cost involved. But the external transformation of Christie into Imogen is only part of the deal. I found it disturbing as well that this is being filmed in the most private of places, her, apart- her apartment, should I say, the set of that is put there by Mara's team, but it is supposedly her apartment from the television viewer's point of view. At she's Mara has set up that even at work, the people where Imogen goes to work assume that they're being filmed for a doco a la The Office, the old comedy. Why do you think people are willing to submit to this kind of invasion of privacy? As a writer, what were you trying to tease out about this? I think that, and Mara talks about this, her internal dialogue, as she sometimes has these moments of wrestling with her better angels. And we are living through an interesting time when it comes to surveillance and privacy and the questions around around that. We are all the stars of our own little movies now that we all have these little smartphones, aren't we? We give our likeness away. We give our voices away. We give up, I think, a lot of the expectations of privacy that we might have been able to hold on to a few decades ago. It comes to, I think, why people give you know, or at least why Christy is willing to give so much of that away or to offer so much up. You look at Big Brother, you look at any of these reality shows where there there is a level of consent to be filmed constantly, right? Or throughout a, a time period. And I think, again, it has to do with the promise of what might be on the other side. The the alluring idea that if I can just pass through this gauntlet or walk across this fire, on the other side of that is fill in the blank, right? And also the trust and I I suppose manipulated trust, at least in, in the context of the shot, that someone like Christy feels in Mara, that she's been convinced that she's in safe hands. And I also wondered too when I was reading all of this about how that compares from your experience of interviewing real people in real life situations for news or documentary. Is there a difference in the two scenarios to submitting to a reality TV process versus submitting to a newspaper or a television interview of a real life event, did you find? Is, or is this, they're very similar? I think I don't. The short answer is I don't know, but I love that question and that is some that's a conversation I'm having a lot with a lot of people strangers on the street if they'll stop and let me chat to them because that to me that question is exactly the heart of the book which is what is the line between entertainment and exploitation and I do think that even in the news and current affairs space for example that line between 
news and entertainment can get blurry. How far is too far? That idea of the ambulance chasing news versus maybe the more traditional journalism that we think of when we think of the word news. There's a lot in there. And I think that really what I'm interested in doing is teasing out a bit of responsibility and ownership on us as audiences, less so on why do we make these shows or why do these people do this? And more, why do we watch this? Why do we like to watch people be humiliated? Why do we like to watch people lose sometimes as much as we like to watch them win? Why do we like to gawk at people at their lowest point? And we are complicit as audiences in our media diet, aren't we? And so Mm. I'm hoping that as people read the book that they feel a little uncomfortable at times in that sense of, I'd watch this show. Is that a good thing? Why would I watch this show? Yeah. The novel touches on so many social issues. In one of the scenes, Edmonton attends a women's rights rally. And one of the chants in that rally is my body, my choice, which is a very chilling section given that she's externally no longer Christie, but it also raised questions in my mind about how much agency Christie thought she had in choosing the transformation into Imogen versus how that would be perceived by outsiders or her own parents who at this point in the novel have no idea what she's done. Is that the point you were trying to make? Yes. And I also think, and again, I feel like you've touched on another of the big themes that I really wanted to get right into the muck of, which is the ways in which our identities are uh, shaped or reshaped, fractured by trauma, by manipulation, by negative encounters. And so by this point in the book where Christy attends this women's march, she's not entirely Christy anymore, is she? She's now taken on this new identity. She has two dueling identities existing within her. And it's almost as if I, I don't know that Christy even knows what she stands for. I think she's figuring it out in real time and finding herself at a women's march chanting ironic slogans, considering what she's just done to herself. I don't think she sees the irony. I think that she's wrestling with what it all means for her and wants to see herself as, I guess, on the right side of things, but can't really see herself clearly within these environments. And also by the time we get to that point in the novel, which you also do really cleverly, and I don't want to give it away, but there's, she is a better version of herself in so many ways. So not just the physicality being an attractive package, but it's almost like it's released something within her to explore her intellect and her creativity and things that she felt as Christy from the trailer park that she was boxed into as a person. Imogen allows her to break out of that and explore tentatively at first and then with growing confidence who she might be. Mm, That's exactly it. And I think that, uh, and again, I'm so happy that you picked up on, on those elements because whilst the most obvious part of the transformation that Christy undergoes is this physical transformation, at the end of the day, it's, she's also given 
language classes to help make her accent more upper class, right? More palatable, a more educated style of speaking English, right? And so there's all of she's introduced to literature in a way that is finally accessible to her in ways that she couldn't access before for reasons that I won't spoil. But yes, it's I think and I hope that what that speaks to is again where standards of beauty or ideals of beauty especially for women intersect with access with privilege with class with political engagement the idea that she would find herself in new york city at a women's march is so unfathomable to the christie that she was at the beginning of the process and yes like you say she's ready for it she wants to expand but then she has to remind herself that she's on camera and she may or may not get to keep all of this right that's the ever present jeopardy and also because and it's a really great term that you repeat in the writing is that mara has told her to keep christy padlocked mm. so while she is imogen and that there's no christy isms that are supposed to escape the boundaries the physical and emotional boundaries of Imogen. There's a lot to unpack here about the public person, the person we project and the interior person and the internal conversation we have with ourselves, isn't there? Absolutely. I was very influenced for the Christie-Imogen divide, the dialogue between these two halves of herself by having had the privilege of in my previous life as a producer and journalist of working with a a group of identities a young woman who has dissociative identity disorder and she lives with four other alters that all inhabit her corporeal reality and i've spent a lot of time with that group of identities and drew quite a lot from the language and the frameworks that they use to describe their existence and how they share this one body and how they operate and when they might hand over a certain responsibility to the one they think is the most capable in a given situation, for example. And and I think that there's a lot we are still learning about identity and about how our personalities are formed and whether those are fixed states. And again, what trauma can do and unspool within us. And so I enjoyed so much writing the that coexistence between these two very distinct characters but that you had to always remember were the same were two halves of the same and it's also a really salutary lesson for any budding writers who are listening to this that you it's really important when you're developing character to have their external needs wants and desires and their external conflicts but it's critical to have the internal conflict, the internal needs, wants and desires. And they don't need to be externally forced onto you. In the, as we just as you just answered with Christine Imogen, so much of the tension in the novel comes from that internal battle for dominance between her the two sides of herself. And we all have that. I have conversations with myself. I have arguments with myself all the time. And I just haven't given one of, I haven't given one of them another name. Or yes, but I don't think that any of us are very far away from that. I think we can all relate to those internal dialogues, but it's, it's a lot of fun to actually distinguish them from each other. 
and now let's play with that. Yes. So turning to Mara, because I wouldn't want to forget the delightful or yes. not so delightful Mara. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the things that works so well in the novel too is how beautifully you reflect back uh, Imogen and Christie's reality to Mara, who is the visibly successful television executive, has her own real demons as well, doesn't she? And in writing the contrasting characters, although not as contrasting as they first appear, what struck you the most about these two women as you're going through? I'm not necessarily talking about the setup so much as the evolution of the character arc, the rolling out of the character arc throughout the writing process. I I always knew obviously that if I were going to be using the reality show device as a a context for exploring all of these themes that we've been discussing that there would be a producer and a contestant right that's the kind of those are the basic ingredients to that but I discovered along the way that it was more interesting and there was more that could be done and teased out if these two characters were reflections of each other in certain ways. And neither one of them, I hope, is necessarily all good or all bad. I think we have two very flawed, wounded, traumatized women. And I think that what the way that I started to wrap my head around it as those things came to the surface was that the wound in one sees the wound in the other. And that sometimes it was those wounded parts of themselves that were operating. And as you mentioned, Mara is much more adept and skilled at keeping whatever she doesn't want to come to the surface under lock and key. Christy and Imogen are a a bit messier. And it becomes, I think, a real porous relationship between Mara and Imogen and Christy. And yes, it brings out themes, again, without giving too much away, but themes of motherhood, themes of loss, themes of guilt, responsibility, the age-old question of to what do I owe my fellow human being and where are the boundaries? And I think that I I am a little bit obsessed with them both. I do think about them still and wonder what they're doing beyond the end of this book. That's not in any way to tease a sequel. It's not what I intend, but I think that they are very unfinished people. And we do leave them in a state of incomplete self. And I think the other great comparison with these two characters is when you look at each of their relationships with their own mothers, Mm. who were both in the novel, Deborah and Lillian. Have I got that right, Lillian? Yeah. Lillian is Mara's mother and Deborah is Christie's mother. Again, two very different women, but two women disabled, if you like, by personal traumas in their lives as well. I thought that was a really wonderful way of reflecting both on, for you to use secondary characters to reflect on your main characters. Did you set out to do it that way or did it just evolve like that in the writing? Both. I think the role of supporting characters and supporting cast is really important. Mara and Christy aren't just on a stage alone, are they? They're populated worlds that they live in. And I think that these kind of prime, primal relationships, that, that relationship to our parents for these women, their relationship to their mothers, what that says about, again, their internal wants and needs, that internal dialogue that they're having with each other really helps us see these women as 
very human. I think it's, it makes it, with Mara, I think her relationship to her mother makes it harder to see Mara as just the baddie. But I also think that Christy's relationship to her mom makes it harder to see Christy as just the goodie. I think that they both have a lot of work to do. I, again, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that a running kind of dark joke in the book is that Mara never can seem to show up to her therapy appointments. And I, I think that there, there's my little plug, right? My little public service announcement that everyone should be in therapy, in my opinion. And these are two women who really need it. And instead, they find themselves locked in battle with each other, which is the most unhealthy thing for either of them. And the other thing that you're touching on there from a writing point of view is that we there's still this ridiculous debate that goes on is that characters need to be likable. And I'm not a fan of that point of view. I think you, I think sometimes it's mu- much more fun to actually dislike characters than it is mm-hmm. to like them. But I think you hit on a key point for people who are looking at their own characters and feeling that they might be a bit two-dimensional or a bit flat is that you've got to have the shades of light and dark. Otherwise, mm. the character is not fully formed. And if you only feel distaste for Mara in this particular case, then you don't get Mara. And did you work t- to develop her shades, to develop her depths through various drafts, or were you really quite conscious of that right from the get-go, that it's fine to be unlikable, but you have to be relatable? Mm. I, again, I know it's an unsatisfying answer to a certain degree, but both and as a writer, that through various drafts and iterations, and especially when you are lucky enough then to get brilliant minds of other people, your editors, your copy editors, your early readers, and getting their influence and their notes and feedback, and you can start to see where some of your blind spots or your gaps might be. Yes, Mara certainly continued to evolve in her layers, her depths, the fact that most of us try to hide our shadow selves from the world, whereas Mara almost tries to hide her light, right? She tries to hide her good. She doesn't want anyone to know that she's secretly sometimes a good person. That's more shameful to her than being seen as the kind of cold-hearted, cutthroat boss that she is. And certainly always knew, like you said, I also am not interested in kind of monochromatic um, people who are always just skipping through the world without any stumbles or making any mistakes. And I think we need to see those closets full of skeletons inside of people. And I'll also just say that it was so interesting to me and unexpected, and I certainly didn't write to this outcome, is that so many people who've read the shot have come up to me and said, I'm team Mara. And that has surprised me to no end because like you say, she's an anti-hero. She's not concerned with the duty of care of, of people around her at all times. And she's imperfect, but there's something about her that seems to have really resonated with readers more so than Christy in a way. And I don't really know why. I wonder if it's got something to do with the fact that she, the external Mara is this hard-nosed, highly successful, creative uh, woman who operates on her own terms a lot of the time and is more quite cheerfully (laughs) able and willing to manipulate those and situations around her. And there's something admirable about that, isn't it, that she has in her professional self, she has so much agency. I think that's that she's able to shrug off 
if you like, the sort of the weaker, (laughs) the more nurturing side of her personality. I think that's exactly it. I think she's a woman in the proverbial man's world. She's carved out that corner office for herself. And she says the quiet part out loud. And I think that there is something delightful about that. She doesn't give her power away in the ways that so many women do. And even though that sometimes I think allows her to do some pretty questionable, morally dubious things. Yeah, it, it's a little bit fun to root for her in a way. Yeah, I that's, think so. that's what I'm, the feedback I'm getting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going on to the plotting side of it, because um, whilst mm-hmm. I said at the beginning, this is a character driven novel, you did shock me a few times or surprise me, I should say, a few times along the read, which is always a big tick to not expect something to happen. The, as I said, some real surprise moments but in terms of writing like the Mm. plotting of the novel did you are you one of these people who likes to really nut it all out before you start are you stumbling across great ideas as you write is the universe like the zeitgeist speaking to you that you go oh my god I just didn't even think that could happen I could put that like how was all the plotting side of it working for you I am definitely a outliner white border, right? I like to have a sense of the roadmap and a framework of where I'm going. I do think that the premise of the shot lent itself in a really beautiful way to helping me organize my thoughts and organizing a pace and a timeline and those kind of major plot points along the way by using the language of production. The book is in three parts and it's the three parts of the production process. So production and post-production. And by giving myself these kind of three silos of periods of time along, along the timeline helped me know what needed to be completed and accomplished before we moved on from one to the other? And what were those important milestones to reach along each of those those portions of the book in a bit of a sequence? But then, yes, I it took me seven years to write this, Meredith, because <laughs> I have had life gets in the way, as it does. Again, to aspiring writers out there, try not to take seven years. But at the same time, if it takes you seven years... It takes you seven years. And I and the beauty of that and the peace I've made with that those seven years is that yes, whilst it might have been some early observations from eight years ago when I spent a couple months working on The Bachelor that planted the seed, in the intervening eight years, the world has given me no shortage of fodder and grist for the mill. We have collectively seen a lot of very challenging pieces of content, I think, pass across our under our gaze that I feel really lucky that I had time to think through and to pull from the ether and find a way to integrate into this manuscript. And I'm thinking about the fact that even as I was reading this book, at the same time on in the real world, there was Prince Harry on the stand talking about how he feels he was pursued and acted against because of his position as a prince and because of his role and because he lives in the public eye. And you've also got that conversation around what right he has to privacy as well. It's around us, isn't it? It's in the nebula of our existence Mm. that this constant tension between how much we give away of our privacy, how much we keep Mm. of our privacy and 
And is it all right for other people if we accidentally or deliberately leave our stuff in the public sphere for them to, to pick up and run with it as well, isn't it? Like, would we be better spending our reality TV dollars in, in, in those financial meetings inside production firms mm. on drama and documentary rather mm. than more reality TV content? Yeah, look, it's one of those things where I certainly don't want to come across as the fun police. If it's if you enjoy watching reality television and that's your guilty pleasure, I am not here to take that away from you. But I would, if I had a moral to the story, and again, I'm not trying to be a, a school teacher here, but it would be for us as audiences, again, to maybe just take that time to ask ourselves what the cost of what we're watching and consuming might be. And I don't think that, as you say, is only in reality television. I think that's in our content diet across the board. True crime is a genre that I personally consume more of than reality television. And even within that space, which is we're living in the golden age of true crime, there, I think, are really important conversations to be had about are we telling this story from the point of view and glorifying the aggressor and the baddie and the and or are we honoring the victim are we honoring the the people impacted by this and there are lots of ways to tell a story and i think that again audiences don't give themselves enough credit for how much power we have about what's on our screens. We can sit back and judge the Kardashians and all of these things, but it's there because we're watching. I think we have to have those conversations within ourselves, again, that internal dialogue. That's you know, right, we- and we do have the power to turn off the television if we want to too. We do, yeah. As a journalist and now a novelist, I'm always really curious as someone who's dabbled in journalism but spent more time in novel writing. I was about to say novelism, goodness me. <laughs> Great word. Yeah, why not? Um, What strikes you as the key differences between writing long-term fiction and journalism? For you, not just like for the, the whole community. Yeah, I think that my particular career in in news and current affairs was always for tele television. So I've, I have never really, I've, I've written articles here and there, but I've never been a print journalist, so to speak. So what I have had many years of experience that I think really assisted me when I set myself the task of writing a full-length novel, I'd also always written short stories and short fiction, but again, that's also a very different undertaking. And I've always written scripts, right? I've always written scripts for documentary or scripts for a news package. And I think that what I've carried through from those experiences into writing creatively is that sense of you can go as far out as you want to go conceptually. You can reach for the stars in terms of of, a big, far out idea, but you have to be clear and you have to be able to kill your darlings, right? The amount of times I've had to take hours and hours of footage or an incredible interview and pare it down to a five minute package, as frustrating as those processes can be when you're in them and you see the gold that doesn't always make it to the screen, it's a vital exercise, I think, in terms of writing with clarity and writing with your audience in mind. You still need to keep a pace and you still need to get to your destination. And uh, having some parameters around that, I think, is absolutely what I have learned in the trenches of writing for telly. 
really good advice there. And the other thing that you're just an idea that you're sparking for me is does that mean that you find that editing your own work is easier than a lot of writers tend to find it? Like you are you brutal on yourself and go, that just has to go and the red pen goes through the mm. page and because it's affecting pacing or there's not enough space or it's a rabbit hole. Are you good at picking that up on yourself? You'd have to verify this with my fine editors at at Macmillan, but I think so. I hope so. I learned a long time ago to pick your battles and to not get overly precious. And, And I think when I'm editing my own work and I'm saying, look, this is too unwieldy. This is a few pages too long. How can I sharpen and refocus this? I do like to think that I am good at taking that big deep breath and hitting delete. And, and, or if I have fallen in love with a bit of prose for whatever reason, chuck it in another document, save it for something else. You can water that little plant a little every once in a while, but maybe it doesn't belong in this garden. I certainly think that when I was lucky enough to come into the publication process and again collaborate with these other brilliant minds uh, I got out of the way and unless there was something that I really felt strongly about I think it was almost a relief if somebody else could see something that we could live without or that we could pare back because I trusted their minds. I trusted the, that group of people as readers. And, and then it's not on me to have to kill that particular darling. Someone else did it for me. And so, yes, I think trust your editors, trust your team. And your readers don't know what didn't end up on the page. And that's what I would tell myself in telly as well. I might be aware of this piece of gold I think I've just left on the floor. No one else is aware. And as long as what makes it to that final that final place gets you where you're wanting to go, then you've done the work. Really good advice there as well. And I was also just curious, just touching briefly, how you found the experience of writing nonfiction with your book, How to Age Against the Machine versus novel writing as well. Are there key differences or similarities in in that process? And also, beg your pardon just for one second, and also one was also a co-editorial, co-writing situation as well. So nonfiction co-writing versus novel writing, creative writing. I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing. That's a question for my therapist again. But I am a very compartmentalized person. And there they are to me vastly different processes and beautifully. And it's a, a certain part of my brain that lights up for that academic, research-driven journalism. And Melissa Doyle is someone who I have collaborated with and worked with across various mediums. And, and again, I think you get to a certain point in your life, a certain age uh, where you own your skills and you know where your talents are and you own where they aren't and you are, you get better at divvying up and sharing the load. And Mel and I are very good at that. And so that process was a, it scratched that itch that I have to consolidate information to get deep into the research and stats and data and those kinds of things. And when that part of my brain needed some fuel, that's the project I would work on. And when I was in a a different frame of mind and that more internal, private, quiet world of my creative self, that's when I would shift my work and my time and attention to the shot. But they are 
maybe a bit like Christine Imogen, two very different parts of me at work. And I am just very aware of what a privilege it is to keep both of those parts of me alive. Mm, what an interesting answer. With all this experience now behind you, what are you taking forward into your next project or projects in terms of habits, shortcuts, different ways of working? What do you, maybe another way of phrasing it is, what do you wish you knew at the beginning that you now know mm. that you will apply? <laughs> I am, again, lucky enough, just I'm pinching myself. You can't, there's no sound that comes along with that for a podcast of the pinching of the self. But I have my second novel coming out with Penn Macmillan sometime early next year. And, and that has been a godsend for me in terms of your question, in terms of what do I wish I had known? Because I think that as obvious as it is, what I've struggled with the most is that there is a moment in the publication process where it's down tools. You just cannot touch that manuscript again. It's no the matter- moment when they send it off to the printer and then you go, that's it? <laughs> yes. And working with Macmillan and with my editors, it has made me a better writer. And I know some writers don't necessarily want to admit that or to tip their hat properly to the other people in the room, but it has refined and sharpened me as a writer. And so all of those moments of remorse of, oh, I could have done that better, or, oh, I wish I would have shifted this or that scene, or, oh, I should have had this character think about this question. Rather than curl up into a ball and go hide under a rock, I am applying all of that knowledge and all of those, you know, what ifs to my next novel. So that's been my approach. I'm very excited to hear you've got another novel coming. Does it have a title yet? It does have a title and I am not at liberty to share it just yet. I know only because as we know, it's not over until it's in print. So just in case it shifts or changes again. That's fair enough. There's a working title and and I am very excited about it. It's nothing like The Shot, except that it involves very messy women making a huge mess of their lives. So in that way, maybe it is like The Shot. Excellent. <laughs> I bet hopefully, hopefully your lovely publishers will send me a review copy, hint, hint. I will make sure they do, Meredith. Yeah. <laughs> so you touched on what it's like to have the book out in the world. You were mentioning when we were off air about how in your career you've always been behind the camera, as it were, or the doing the noddies when you're doing the interviewing. What's it like to be on the other side of that experience? How are you finding that? Oh, terrifying and exhilarating all at the same time. The exact emotions we feel on a roller coaster where you can't wait till it's over, but you're having the time of your life. And so it's, I feel really privileged that I've been able to observe the media process for so many years. So it's probably a little less scary to me than it might be to someone who's never gone on telly or done some live radio or things like that. But I had my launch event last night the shop for example it was a very hometown friendly audience of it looked pretty much like my wedding that was how many friendly familiar faces there were and yet still there was a point where i my mouth had gotten so dry that i could feel my lips stuck to my teeth from nerves and i thought can everyone see so i think it's just about getting control of your breath settling in and just trusting that no one can talk about your work better than you. And <laughs> and then speaking to intellects such as yours and people who've taken the time to really closely read and think about what you've created. And it's, it's, a conversation like this is an honor. Oh, so I think that's just, very kind. You know, 
Oh, but it's true. You don't, you write these things alone in a room, don't you? Many days would go by where I'd realize I'd only spoken to my dog and maybe a barista here and there. And so it's, you have to fight through those nerves, I think, and recognize that it's a massive privilege. Oh, what a beautiful way to end. All I can do is wish you luck with the rest of the publicity tour and the fun and joy of all of those games. And I can't wait to read the next book because I just loved this book so much. Thank you so much, Neymar, for spending time on the Convo Couch today and congratulations on a really fantastic debut book, The Shot. For those listening, it's an intriguing page turn of a read and I think you'll really enjoy getting to meet Mara, Christy and Imogen not to mention Mercy the dog, just as an aside there. (laughs) It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today about your book, your backstory and your writing process. For those of you listening in, you can find more out about Neymar and follow her on socials at Neymar underscore Brown underscore official. And, of course, the shot is available in all your local libraries and wherever you buy your books. Neymar Brown, thank you very much. Thank you, Meredith. It was a total joy. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.